Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. On the line with us is the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work.info, the author of numerous books, including his latest, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, Professor Richard Wolf, rdwolf with two fs.com. One of his websites, his Twitter handle is profwolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. Professor Wolf, let's talk this week about your book, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save It from Pandemics or Itself. How is the form of capitalism that we practice here in the United States itself problematic in context of trying to provide for the general welfare, the general health? Well, I think uh, to be blunt, but to be clear, it doesn't work. Capitalism is not a way of managing public health, and we are just now living through a horrific lesson in that truth. And let me briefly explain. We have in America the companies and the factories and the trained personnel who can make masks and gloves and ventilators and hospital beds, everything you need. We have it. We also know that viruses are a part of life. They've been with the human race from day one. We had a terrible one 100 years ago. We really know what they can do. So we know we need to have stockpiled across the United States adequate materials like masks and so on, because we know viruses are transmitted from one mouth, one face to another. We failed to do that. The United States, with 4.5% of the world's people, uh, has 25% of the COVID cases and deaths. What happened? answer. It wasn't profitable for companies to produce and stockpile masks. There's no secret here, and there's nothing complicated. The reason is simple. If you produce millions of masks, then you have to store them around the country, presumably near centers of population. You have to monitor those masks in those warehouses. Do they stay clean? Do they deteriorate? If they deteriorate, they have to be replaced. If they get unclean, they have to be sterilized, etc., etc. You have to monitor that. And how long do you have to wait? Well, no one knows till the next virus comes. That's a very risky proposition. It's not very profitable when you think of all the expenses and the unknown wait time. So guess what? 
in a capitalist system where profit is the bottom line, the companies that could have made these things didn't do it because private profit is not the way you handle uh, the problem of public health. The first demand of any economic system would have to seem to me to be to sustain the health of our people. Otherwise, the rest of it really becomes moot. It's no longer relevant. And this is a system which puts profit first. And in this case, the profit dictated not to produce what the public health demanded. And the government could have stepped in and said, okay, private capitalism really uh, stinks when it comes to public health. So the government, to compensate for the failures of capitalism as an economic system, is going to come in and do it. In other words, the government will pick up the risk by holding this stuff in warehouses. It'll pick up the cost of those warehouses and of maintaining. It would do all of that because private capitalism fails. And we know that the government could do this. That's the worst of it, because the government already does. As my book tries to make clear, it's equally unprofitable to produce a missile or a machine gun or a jet fighter or any of the other basics of our military equipment. And so what happens is private profit would dictate to companies, don't make those things. Don't store them in expensive warehouses because nobody knows when the next war using them will come down the pike. It's like a virus, you might say. So what does the government do? It comes in and it buys the jet planes and the tanks and the machine guns as fast as they roll off the assembly line. And then at our taxpayer expense, it stores it, it stockpiles it, it maintains it. So we know the government could do it. But the government, beholden to this ideology that private profit is the magic road to everything, didn't step in to do in the medical care field what it does as a normal matter of business in the military field. And I think it's a tragic explanation that capitalism left to its own profit-driven decision-making is a disaster for us. Health-wise, yeah. I just read Zeke Emanuel's book, Which Country Has the Best Healthcare? And right. he goes through South Korea, Taiwan, most of the European countries. I mean, he goes through a whole bunch of different countries and examines how their healthcare systems are put together and where they came from. And none of them are rooted in capitalism. None of them. The closest you can get to one that is not a government single-payer system is Switzerland, where everyone is required to buy health insurance. And there are something like 100 health insurance companies in Switzerland, but they are all also heavily regulated and required to be not-for-profit corporations. So there's no profit motive. So I don't see where capitalism is functioning anywhere in the world in the healthcare sector in terms of providing health care to people, except in the United States, and it's clearly not functioning here. Yes, and I think the underlying message here is one that American ideology, the dominant ideology in this country, refuses to face. Uh, we have to understand, we live in a society which is fundamentalist in economics. And I mean that in the sense like fundamentalist in religion. It has an idea. It is the idea for them that is the absolute truth 
everything else is to be rejected, and the, tr the evangelical notion of economic fundamentalism is that the private sector is always efficient, always best, always the optimum way to go, and this is craziness, especially when it's costing us 210,000, if my numbers are correct, of dead Americans because this government is unable or unwilling to step in when the private profit capitalist system really messes up. I'm hoping that the lesson will be learned, tragic though it may be, to have spent all of these sick people right up to our president to, to teach the lesson. But that's what the book tries to expose. You lay it out brilliantly. We're talking with Professor Richard Wolff, his latest book, The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Professor Wolf, in the, in the minute or so we have left, what are your thoughts on how we transition from a capitalist, profit-driven healthcare system to one that resembles the rest of the developed world? I think we have to use the same basic approach that the rest of the developed world did, which is it's clear what the priority is public health, and that's not just in terms of health care, but the quality of our food, uh, what we put in our mouths every day, all of that, those are the bottom lines. Those are the priorities. And we have an economic system that is evaluated and judged on how well it does on that priority task. And by that calculation, we should see this pandemic, the one good thing that might come out of it, all right, we learned our lesson. Let's get a public health system of the sort that puts public health first and subordinates the private profit of a few to what is necessary for the majority. From your lips to the ears of every American, <laughs> let us hope. Professor Richard Wolf, the book, The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, by Professor Richard Wolf. hearings are going on. They're actually, there's a lot at stake here. And I think the thing that doesn't get discussed, and, and frankly, I have not heard any mention of it, Amy Coney Barrett could be delivering to the billionaires who have sponsored her legal career and the legal careers of so many of these young judges who the Federalist Society and their billionaire donors reached out to back when they were in law school and brought them into the warm embrace of this uh, you know, right-wing bubble. There are seven million people now in the United States who have COVID. They would lose pre-existing condition protections. And we know that about half of them are probably symptomatic. That's around three and a half million people. Of the people who are symptomatic, about a quarter of them have you know, fairly serious complications, things like dementia and heart damage. And of the people who are symptomatic, around uh, 4 or 5% of them end up in the hospital and uh, dead. A total case fatality rate in the United States right now of 2.7%. But none of that, I think, in my opinion, is what's animating the right-wing fossil fuel and other polluting industry billionaires who have been underwriting the Federalist Society, as far as we can tell, and underwriting this massive effort from Americans for Prosperity across the board to put right-wing judges on the courts, the popular explanation is that they're doing it because they're so concerned about abortion. I guarantee you, right-wing billionaires don't give a damn about abortion. 
In fact, they are the least likely to give a damn because if they get somebody pregnant, uh, and I'm saying this because the vast majority of them are men. In fact, I don't know of any who are women. But in any case, because if they get somebody pregnant, and even if abortion's illegal in the United States, they can simply hop on a private jet and go to Canada or go to Mexico or go to Europe or, you know, wherever, you know, places where abortion is legal. In Ireland, an almost entirely Catholic country, they had a public referendum a few years ago. You know, they put it on the ballot and they legalized abortion. The very richest people, they don't care about abortion. They don't care about gun control, the Second Amendment, the Heller decision. That's not what they care about. They care about money. That's why they're billionaires. So here we have this summary of exactly what repealing the Affordable Care Act would do. Quote, the richest one-tenth of one percent of households whose annual incomes are greater than $3 million would receive tax cuts averaging $200,000 a year, while households with annual incomes over $1 million would receive tax cuts averaging over $40,000 a year. Those total tax cuts would cost all of us, cost our country, $30 billion in 2020 which is more than one-third the cost of the Affordable Care Act's expansion of Medicaid to low-income adults. It's enough to pay for the coverage for four million people. In addition, the pharmaceutical companies, they get a tax break of $2.8 billion. Meanwhile, it's now semi-official from today's Washington Post, or maybe it's yesterday's Joel Achenbach, the headline, Proposal to Hasten Herd Immunity to the Coronavirus Grabs White House Attention But Appalls Top Scientists. Alex Azar, the guy who, when he was the CEO of Eli Lilly, doubled the price of insulin, he's now the head of Health and Human Services. Because Trump has this just standing policy. Any agency that has regulatory power that can be used to make billionaires richer and average Americans poorer, we're going to put somebody in that position who is going to work to make billionaires richer and average people poorer. And Alex Azar is a great example of that. And he's in charge of HHS. A, a senior administration official, this is from the Washington Post, the senior administration official told reporters in a background briefing call Monday that the proposed strategy, Alex Azar was talking about, our strategy for COVID, is basically herd immunity. Quote, the plan is endorsing what the president's policy has been for months. National Institutes of Health Director Francis Collins, NIH director, works for Alex Azar. The plan is endorsing what the president's policy has been for months. The president's policy, protect the vulnerable, prevent hospital overcrowding, and open schools and businesses. He's been very clear on that. Well, how do you do all those things at once? Uh, without everybody wearing masks, without everybody being regularly tested and contact tracing? You don't. This is a herd immunity strategy. The person goes on to say, I don't think society has to be paralyzed. We know the harms of confining people to their homes. So the administration, the Trump administration, has embraced herd immunity. They're just saying, this is it. We're going to try and spread this virus as far as wide as we can. And Donald Trump, in the 20 days until the election, every single day wants to be out in front of thousands of people helping spread the virus in those communities. Now, we know that there's a couple of people in the hospital right now as a result of Trump's doing a rally. A bunch of infections have been traced to this, two of them hospitalized. His Tulsa rally spiked coronavirus all across Oklahoma. 
This is happening everywhere Donald Trump goes, is a few weeks later you see this spike in infections. Well, that's actually their policy. Spread the disease until 70% of Americans are infected. So we have 340 million people. 70% of that is 238 million people. All 238 million people will then be at risk for the known side effects of this, like dementia, strokes, heart damage, kidney damage, and severe chronic fatigue. But right now, according to Johns Hopkins, our case fatality rate is 2.7%. In other words, if 100 people get coronavirus, 2.7 of them will die. If Trump's policy of infecting 238 million Americans, 70% of the population, to create herd immunity, if that policy is followed through, and we have a case fatality rate of 2.7%. That means you have 6.4 million dead Americans. Just do the math. 2.7% of 238 million people is 6.4 million Americans dead. On top of that, we have multiple confirmed reports around the world, tested, checked, peer-reviewed science, that people are getting reinfected by the coronavirus the same way that we periodically get reinfected with the flu and the common cold. Yeah, we get immunity to the flu and the common cold. That's why they go away until next year when the immunity fades or there's a new variation on the virus. And every time they've developed a vaccine for common cold virus 123, turns out it doesn't work for common cold virus 124 because it's mutating constantly. It's just, it's, it's impossible to develop a vaccine. It's a challenge that we have with flu. Half the time, because flu is constantly mutating, half the time the flu shots have very little effect against the main strain that's floating around because they guessed wrong a year in advance when they started developing the vaccine. There are now seven major mutations of this virus that we know of, and there's probably dozens of others. He got two different variations on it, and the second time he got sick, he got so sick he had to go into the hospital and get oxygen. And this has been you know, totally nailed down now, which raises the question of, Will a vaccine ever be effective? Or is this going to be like the flu vaccine where it's a gamble? So even after 6.2 million Americans have died or 6.4 million Americans have died following Trump's herd immunity strategy, the other 238 million of us who are infected or who have been infected can get reinfected and have a brand new opportunity to die or have a stroke or have lifelong dementia. We are the only country in the world willing to pursue this stupid and deadly herd immunity policy, but we're also the only country in the world without a national health care system, which is at the core of any public health strategy. And that's the bottom line here. Until we have Medicare for all, until we have a national health care system, we're going to find it very, very difficult to do anything other than herd immunity. This is nuts. This pandemic is a wake-up call. We need Medicare for all, and we need it now. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. 
Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Medication from Minneapolis. This is, uh, Mom was Andy diagnosed Klobuchar. with breast cancer. Janet from Rochester, whose brother has a mental illness. Or Christy, a mom from Bloomington, whose daughter had a tumor. That is what is on the line. Healthcare is on the line. Uh, and Judge, uh, that's what's on the line in your nomination hearing, uh, which unfortunately has been plopped in the middle of this election. This morning you had, I would call it an academic discussion with uh, Chairman Graham about the doctrine of severability, um, and that's about if you can uphold uh, part of a statue uh, but throw out uh, another part of it. And you correctly said there is a presumption to save the statute if possible. Uh, so I want to be really clear with the American people that the Trump administration's own brief, this is the position of the Trump administration, <clears throat> filed by the Trump Justice Department, says that the entire Affordable Care Act must fall. That is the position of the Trump administration going into this uh, case that's going before the Supreme Court in a few weeks. A judge you clerked at the Supreme Court, does the Justice Department's brief that they have filed represent the administration's and therefore the president's position before the Supreme Court? Um, the Solicitor General is the government's advocate before the court. Right. Yes, that would represent the United States. Right. And if the brief didn't represent the president's position, he would have the Solicitor General, the Solicitor General and the Justice Department withdraw the brief. Is that right? I believe so, yes. Okay. I just wanted to make that clear uh, to the chairman and to everyone out there that while there is this doctrine to separate stuff and to try to uphold part of the statute, like maybe pre-existing conditions or doing something about keeping your kids on the insurance, the position of the Trump administration is to throw the whole thing out. Um, the second thing I want to make clear um, is that you have been nominated to the highest court in the land and you will be the deciding vote in many cases that will affect people's lives. And I appreciate it that you've said it's not the law of Amy, um, it's not your law, but the point is, is that you will be in a really important position. I think that's one of the reasons that 
Uh, they're trying to ram through this process right now. And while you're not saying how you're going to rule on cases, as I said yesterday, I've been following the tracks. And the only way for the American people to figure out how you might rule Amy Klobuchar is, to is questioning and to follow Amy Coney the tracks. Bryant right now. And we know Barrett, this. You said me, you consider right Justice Scalia one of the most conservative judges in our nation's history as a mentor. You've criticized the decision written by Justice Roberts upholding the Affordable Care Act. In a 2015 NPR interview, you praised the dissent by Justice Scalia in another Affordable Care Act case, saying the dissent had the better of the legal argument. You signed your name to a public statement featured in an ad that called for an end to what the ad called the barbaric legacy of Roe v. Wade, which ran on the anniversary of the 1973 Supreme Court decision. You wrote your own dissent disagreeing with longstanding court rulings on gun safety, expressing your legal opinion that some felons should get guns. And you once discussed the dissent in the marriage equality case, asking whether it was really the Supreme Court's job to make that decision. So to me, these tracks lead us to one place, uh, and that is that you will have the polar opposite judicial philosophy of Justice Ginsburg. And to me, that would change the balance of this court, which is already 5-4 and known as very conservative when you look back through history, to 6-3. 6-3. And that would have great repercussions for the American people. So I wanted to follow up on something that Senator Harris and I asked you about yesterday, and that is the issue of whether or not you understood the president's clear position on the Affordable Care Act before you wrote the article in which you criticized the legal reasoning for upholding the Affordable Care Act. The president tweeted um, just one day after you were nominated, that would be September 27th, that it would be a big win if the Supreme Court strikes down the health law. But before you were nominated, and this is what we showed yesterday, uh, Donald Trump tweeted promising that his judicial appointments will do the right thing on Obamacare, unlike uh, Justice Roberts. Yesterday, you were asked by Senator Harris, prior to your nomination, were you aware of President Trump's statements committing to nominate judges who will strike down the Affordable Care Act? You said, I can't really definitively give you a yes or no answer. What I would like to say is I don't recall hearing about or seeing such statements. And after she followed up, you said that the tweet wasn't something that I heard or saw directly by reading it myself. Okay, so I just want to go through some of the things that have happened over the last few years. Um, uh, regarding the president's, really, his obsession to uh, repeal Obamacare. Um, he said, we will repeal and replace disastrous Obamacare uh, when accepting the Republican nomination at the Republican convention in 2016. Did you see that speech? See at that speech? At the Republican convention in, in 2016. I'm not no. asking if you were there. I was asking if you saw it on TV. Uh, convention no, on TV. Or okay. I did. I don't remember any of it. Um, he has said things like, um, it begins, he wants to immediately repeal and replace the disaster known as Obamacare. He has said uh, that he wants to get rid of it. He has said in States of the Union, I am calling on Congress to repeal it. Um, he said, can you believe that Mitch McConnell, who has screamed repeal and replace for seven years, couldn't get it done? So there have literally been hundreds of statements by him, by my colleagues, 
And I just find it hard to understand that you were not aware of the president's statements. Um, I am aware that the president opposes the Affordable Care Act. I'm aware that he has criticized the Affordable Care Act. I took Senator Harris's question yesterday to be referring to the specific tweet, maybe the one that you have behind you, about how he wanted to put a justice on the court to replace Obamacare. Mm -hmm. And I'm definitely aware of that tweet now. Um, and as I said to Senator Harris yesterday, it came up in some of my calls with Democratic senators, um, brought it up. But I honestly can't remember whether I knew about it before I was nominated or not. I don't, I'm not sure. But you, did you have then a general understanding that one of the president's campaign promises was to repeal the Affordable Care Act when you were nominated? Um, I, as I said before, I'm aware that the president opposes the Affordable Care Act. Well, I know you're aware now, but were you aware back then? Well, seems When you were nominated. Well, Senator Klobuchar, I think that the Republicans have kind of made that clear. It's just been part of the public discourse. Okay, but it just it's within the, is the answer yes then that you well, were. Well, Senator aware of Klobuchar, it? all these questions you're, you're suggesting that I have animus or that I cut a deal with the president, and I was very clear yesterday that that isn't what happened. Were you generally aware of the president's statements when you wrote in an article in the University of Minnesota Law School Journal? Uh, in 2017, the same year that you became a Seventh Circuit judge, that he pushed the Affordable Care Act beyond its plausible meaning to save the statue, that Justice Roberts had done that. Were you aware of that, of the president's statements when you wrote that article? So that article, Senator Harris told me yesterday, was published in January of 2017. Okay. And a Law Review article takes several months to go into production. So I can't remember specifically when the conference was. Uh, that article came out of a conference for Randy Barnett's book. I can't remember when it was, but I suspect it was before the election. It's not like I wrote it in okay, January but President Trump has been saying this in 2015, in 2016, um, and that's two years. It didn't take you that long to write the article. So my question is simply, were you aware of President Trump's opposition to the Affordable Care Act during that time? Senator Klobuchar, I have no idea, and I suspect that if the article was published in January, that I wrote it sometime before the presidential election. Mm -hmm. And again, I want to okay. stress, I have no animus to or agenda for the Affordable Care Act. So to the extent you're suggesting this was like an open letter okay. to uh, President Trump, it was not. Okay. In the 2017 University of Minnesota Law School Journal that we just discussed, one of the things you said is, there is a risk that a faction can run away with the legislative process, but there is also a risk that a faction will conscript courts into helping them win battles they, ha they have already lost fair and square. That's something you wrote in that article? I did. I was responding to an argument made by Randy Barnett in his book, Our Lost Constitution. No, I don't know if it was Our Lost Constitution or not, but yes. Um, so, I mean, that is what I'm afraid has happened here. They have tried 70 times, uh, the Republicans in Congress, to overturn Obamacare. And now they're bringing this case to the court, and you are going to be sitting on the court. And so, and I find it very hard to believe that you didn't understand that. Uh, when you wrote the article. So I, I want to, there's one other piece of this, and that is uh, the effect on uh, the 
economy. And we all know this has been very difficult. My colleagues know this. Uh, according to one Yelp study, more than 800 businesses have closed every day. 30 million people uh, were out of work at the height of the pandemic. We're still down 10 million jobs. Um, and so one of the things that's been going on here is we've seen more and more consolidation and um, leading me to antitrust. And that part of this, I think, is the COVID relief package we have to pass, but also antitrust. Competition is a driving force of our economy. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, at her nomination hearing, uh, described the Sherman Act as a broad charter. She said that free enterprise is the spirit of the antitrust laws, and the courts construe statutes in accord with the essential meaning that Congress had for passing them. Do you agree with her statement? The Sherman Act is broadly worded, you know, insofar as it prevents combinations, contracts, combinations, and conspiracies in restraint of trade. And because that language is broad, courts have developed a robust doctrine of common law to um, enforce and bring about its promise mm -hmm. of eliminating contracts, cons conspiracies, and combinations that restrain trade. Yes, and I think you and I have discussed this before, but in recent years, Supreme Court opinions, by the way, all decided over Justice Ginsburg's dissent, have made enforcing our antitrust laws even more difficult. As a textualist, how would you reconcile the broad language of the Sherman Act uh, with recent judicial precedent that has substantially narrowed the application of the statute in practice? Um, Let's see, I can say as a textualist how I would approach the Sherman Act. And in the case of the Sherman Act, you're right that it's broad language. Um, the text of the Sherman Act, as the court has determined over time, essentially permits the court to develop a common law. So I think, you know, I haven't really had occasion to decide very many antitrust cases um, on the Seventh Circuit, but it's an area, because it's largely been left to judicial development, that is controlled by precedent for the most part. Mm -hmm. It is, and that's my concern uh, right now, is that it has been so narrowed in its interpretation. This is uh, Amy Klobuchar. Sherman Act, uh, questioning Clayton Act, Amy uh, that it's almost we'll be back. Uh, become impossible for people uh, to just bring a few those cases with, uh, in any big well, way. You know, I want to turn to something we talked about yesterday, which we'll is elections. When we get to uh, you a Republican, uh, worked to on the recount in Florida. Uh, that uh, was related to the Bush v. Gore case, including on an absentee ballot issue on behalf of the Republican side of that case. Is that right? Um, I did work on Bush v. Gore. I did work on behalf of the Republican side. To be okay. totally honest, I can't remember exactly what piece of the case it was. Yeah. There were no Don't worry, challenges. I'm not going to ask you that. Okay. Uh, we're in the middle of a global pandemic that is forcing voters to choose between their health and their vote. Um, our Absentee ballots, or better known as mail-in ballots, uh, an essential way to vote for millions of Americans right now? Um, that's a matter of policy on which I can't express a view. <laughs> okay. That just, to me, that just feels like a fundamental part of our democracy. But, uh, okay, let's try this. Have you ever voted by mail? Um, I can't recall a time that I voted by mail. It may be in college that I did when I was living away from home, but I, I can't, as I'm sitting here, specifically recall a time I voted by mail. Do you have friends or family that have voted by mail or are voting by mail? I have had friends or family vote by mail. Um, and you understand we're operating in a moment where the president is undermining vote by mail, even though a number of uh, Republican governors and Republican senators are supportive of it. Um, 
many argue that Bush v. Gore, and back to your earlier work, um, hurt the court's legitimacy. If you are confirmed, the Supreme Court will have not one, not two, but three justices, you, Justice Kavanaugh, and Chief Justice Roberts, who worked on behalf of the Republican Party in matters related to the Bush v. Gore case. Do you think that that's a coincidence? Um, Senator Klobuchar, if you're asking me whether I was nominated for this seat because I worked on Bush versus Gore for a very brief period of time as a young associate, uh, that doesn't make sense to me. I'm just, I just think it's such a coincidence to me. I actually didn't know it until yesterday. But will ha having justices with this background, two of whom were appointed by the current president, decide any cases related to the upcoming election, do you think that will undermine the legitimacy of the court? Um, asking whether something would undermine the legitimacy of the court or not seems to be trying to elicit a question about whether it would be appropriate for justices who participated in that litigation to sit on the case rather than recuse. And I went down that road yesterday saying it's I know. a legal question. You said you wouldn't recuse. That's why I thought it was That isn't so what I said. I said I well, wouldn't you said admit, I wouldn't recommit. You're right. You said you wouldn't make, uh, announce your decision on recusal and you wouldn't commit to recusing. But again, I think the public has a right to know that now three of these justices have worked on the Republican side on a major, major issue related to a presidential election. Um, one thing I wanted to revisit quickly, Smiley v. Home. Um, the reason I asked about that is that um, this would be unprecedented. Um, when we, right now, we're in an unprecedented time where we have a president who refuses to commit to a peaceful transfer of power, um, working to undermine uh, the integrity of this election. And yesterday, you wouldn't commit to recuse yourself from the case we just talked about. But now we're considering your confirmation to the highest court in the land in the midst of this election. And in Smiley v. Home, where the Supreme Court held that a governor is part of the legislative process, and therefore a legislature cannot unilaterally change election rules, uh, that could be very important because we have a number of swing states where we have legislature of one party, governor of the other. And we have this precedent that has been on the books um, for nearly 90 years. Do you think that that is established Supreme Court precedent? It's, it said that a governor is part of the legislative process. Um, I actually am not familiar with that case, but it is precedent. If, uh, obviously, it's a precedent of the court. Okay. Um, I wanted to turn to one last issue, and that is First Amendment and freedom of the press, near and dear to my heart. My dad was a journalist. Uh, he would go everywhere for a good story and cared a lot about freedom of the press. And regrettably, our right to a free and independent press is under assault. We have witnessed unprecedented attacks on journalists and journalism in the past several years. Our president frequently uses his Twitter account to attack news organizations. He has accused the media of being fake news and called them the enemy of the people. Obviously, we also have journalists overseas that are under attack by dictators. Uh, I want to pay special tribute to those brave journalists whose dogged pursuit of the truth never wavered despite threats of imprisonment, violence, and even death. Journalists like, journalists like Jamal Khashoggi and the men and women of the Capitol Gazette. Their legacy is proof that fear will not silence facts. 
The founders recognized that a free press is vital to a vibrant and strong democracy, and that's why we need Supreme Court justices who understand the importance of protecting the right of journalists. Uh, first time v. Sullivan, um, you know that's a landmark ruling and with the support of the First Amendment protections for the press and protecting journalists unless they say something untrue with actual malice. Justice Thomas has expressed skepticism with that case, uh, writing in his concurrence in McGee v. Cosby that if the Constitution does not require public figures to satisfy an actual malice standard in state law defamation suits, then neither should we. Do you agree with Justice Thomas that the court should reconsider the actual malice standard because it is inconsistent with the original meaning of the Constitution? Well, Senator Klobuchar, I can't really express a view on either New York Times v. Sullivan or Justice Thomas's critique of it without violating the principle that I've repeatedly stated. This is uh, Amy Klobuchar, Democrat from Minnesota, questioning that, you know, uh, I can't Amy comment Barrett. on matters of litigation or grade precedents that the court has already decided. I guess uh, my last thing I'll just say is I hope people watching out there are going to follow the tracks of this record and are going to vote. Thank you. Let's pick up some of your phone calls here and get your thoughts on this. Bobby in La Puente, California. Hey, Bobby, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? First of all, I want to thank you for putting the show on, your wife and the rest of the crew, and I mean it. Thank the you, thing Bobby. is, Dick Cruz, yes, and I mean it, uh, the health care, these Republicans, I'm telling you, I don't know what keeps me from hating. Somebody says, hey, hating is like you drinking poison and hoping them to die. Hey, it makes sense. So how can I be uncompassionate? taking health care away from people during a pandemic because it hits home with me because I got a daughter that's homeless. I'm raising a seven-year-old and thank the creator for my union that I have a pension, Medicare, Medicare for all. And I feel for the people that call in that are hurting. And it hits home because I remember my mother, you know, being that way, not enough money for rent. And now that's, uh, it's, I don't understand these people, and they profess to be Christians. You're a Christian by having a show. You're part of my mental health, Tom. We need it. They don't care. You know, I tell my wife, they want to get rid of us. It's like handing out smallpox again, blankets, but they do it different. And to me, that's how I look at it. You know, if the Creator was here or Jesus, I don't know him much, he would cry, in my opinion. I don't know how you feel about that cruise. I like to not slap the beard off him, if I can say that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I say it, but, but I'll pray for him because there's something that Christ says. I'm not a Christian, but I like what he says. Forgive them, for they not know what they do. When I heard that, wow, yeah. I can forgive my own man. You know, other people, you know, I'm on a journey. You know what I'm saying? One day at a time, yeah. listening to you, you know, friends of mine. Yeah, we keep in touch, so... But I pray for those. Keep on pushing, people. And, and Thank I mean you, Bobby. That. Thank you. I, I appreciate your comments. And, of course, I assume that when you're talking about slapping crews, you're talking metaphorically. If literally, mm -hmm. I know that you're not making any kind of threat or anything like that. Bobby, thank you for the call. Wow, it's a tough one. Oh, I wanted to share this over on Axios today. Felix Salmon. A person who's looking for a full-time job that pays a living wage but can't find one is unemployed, right? If you accept that definition, the true unemployment rate in the United States right now is 26.1%. If you measure unemployment as anybody who's over 16 years old and isn't earning a living wage, that means that our unemployment rate right now is 54.6% for black Americans, 
everything has gotten so much worse. Only 46% of white Americans and only 40% of black Americans now have a full-time job that pays more than $20,000 a year. I mean, just, you know, digest that for a moment. Uh, Richard Blumenthal is now asking, they've got their audio together. Uh, Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut, the Democrat from Connecticut, is now talking to Judge Barrett. Here she is. Uh, I also want to go back to another aspect of our conversation because Senator Graham asked about it this morning. I showed you a letter that you signed from 2013 by the Notre Dame Faculty for Life Mm -hmm. and uh, specifically a sentence, the the unborn to be protected, uh, we renew our call for the unborn to be protected in law and welcomed in life. And then I asked you about the IVF procedure, whether it could be banned criminally under the Constitution. And you said to me that you couldn't answer that question in the abstract. You said we can't answer questions in the abstract. I asked you about your legal opinion and position, not your personal beliefs or religious views. You understand that point? Yes, yes. And I am disappointed that evidently you can't tell us or the American people whether you believe or your legal position is that IVF can be constitutionally banned because so many Americans depend on this medical procedure for the ability to have children. I also want to ask you, should courts, specifically the Supreme Court, be deciding the next presidential election? Um, So the presidential election, as with all elections, is a matter put to the voters to cast ballots. But the presumption should be against the courts deciding an election. It's the people and the voters who should decide, correct? Um, Let's see, Senator Blumenthal. So I think that occasions on which courts adjudicate election disputes are designed to protect the voters' choice and the right to vote. So, of course, the Supreme Court doesn't cast ballots. Voters cast ballots in election laws designed to protect the right to vote. The courts should do everything possible to avoid embroiling themselves in elective politics. Ruscio versus Common Cause says that, for example, um, gerrymandering is a political question because it's difficult in many circumstances for courts to develop judicially manageable standards to... Presumption should be against courts getting involved. Let me ask you about some precedents, and I'm asking not about super precedents. Okay. And as you define super precedents, they are cases so well settled that no political actions, no people seriously push for their overturning. I'm not asking you about what other people may think about these cases or may do about them. And I'm not asking you hypotheticals. These are real cases. First, Brown versus Board of Education. Do you think it was correctly decided? I know you told Senator Graham you thought so. I'd like you just to clarify that point. Sure. So as I said to Senator Graham when he asked me that question, I have spoken on that before um, in the originalism lecture that I give. As you sit here, correctly decided, right? Correctly decided. And yes, I've said that. Thank you. Let me ask you about uh, Loving versus the, the Loving case, 
Uh, do you think that was correctly decided? Well, Loving follows directly from Brown. Brown is correctly decided, Loving as well. It was correctly decided. It was correctly decided. Thank you. Uh, now let's talk about uh, Griswold. Correctly decided? Well, Senator Blumenthal, the reason I know you I gave an answer, excuse me for interrupting. Yes. Uh, I know you gave an answer to Senator Coons, but this issue is more than academic. That was the word that you used. You said that it's very, 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 very unlikely to be challenged, and maybe, but all the more reason that you should be willing to tell the American people it was correctly decided. I'm asking about your legal position. Would you have been in the majority? Well, Senator, I have a couple of things on that. One is that the reason why I expressed a view on Brown to Senator Graham is that I do think what I have said in print either in my scholarly work or in judicial opinions is fair game. And I have expressly said in the past in the originalism lecture that I've given repeatedly that Brown was correctly decided. So I think that was fair game. And Loving is indistinguishable from Brown. It flows directly from it. Loving involved interracial marriage. And Griswold involves a ban on contraception, criminal ban on the use of contraceptives. Uh, which in turn also involves Eisenstadt v. Baird. These are fundamental cases, and I'm asking your legal position. I want you to keep in mind how many people are listening and watching because they may... Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. that birth control was about to be criminalized because I said to Senator Coons... You may be surprised, it. but Justice, Chief Justice Roberts said, quote, I agree with the Griswold Court's conclusion that marital privacy extends to contraception. Justice Kennedy, if a hypothetical case were to be imagined that better fits within the privacy that I believe the Constitution protects, I couldn't think of a hypothetical better than Griswold. At his hearing, Justice Thomas said, I believe the approach that Justice Harlan took in Poe v. Ullman and reaffirmed again in Griswold in determining the right to privacy was the appropriate way to go. And he reaffirmed Eisenstadt v. Baird. Uh, I'm stunned that you're not willing to say an unequivocal yes. It was correctly decided I would have been in the majority. Lawrence v. Texas, which held that the government cannot criminalize gay and lesbian relationships. Was it correctly decided? 
Senator Blumenthal, I, again, you know, I've said throughout the hearing that I can't grade precedent in the words of Justice Kagan, give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. So you down can't give me a yes or no answer. Again, forgive me for interrupting, but my yes. time is limited. Um, well, Senator Blumenthal, I can't give a yes or a no, and my declining to give an answer doesn't suggest disagreement or agreement, and it certainly shouldn't suggest that I'm I asking your legal up. position, Judge, not your moral position, not a policy position, not a religious faith position, a legal position, correctly decided, Obergefell versus Hodges. Senator Blumenthal, every time you ask me a question about whether a case was correctly decided or not, I cannot answer that question because I cannot suggest agreement or disagreement with precedents of the Supreme Court. All of those precedents bind me now as a Seventh Circuit judge, and were I to be confirmed, I would be responsible for applying the law of stare decisis to all of them. But, Your Honor, think of how you would feel as a gay or lesbian American to hear that you can't answer whether the government can make it a crime for them to have that relationship, whether the government can enable people who are happily married to continue that relationship. Senator, Think of how you would feel. Well, Senator, you're implying that I'm poised to say that I want to cast a vote to overrule Obergefell, and I assure you I don't have any agenda, and I don't, I'm not even expressing a view in disagreement of Obergefell. You're pushing me to try to violate the judicial canons of ethics and to offer advisory opinions, and I won't do that. Judge, you yourself wrote in 2016 an article that you co-wrote with John Nagel called Congressional Originalism. Quote, a confirmation hearing answering hypothetical questions about the soundness of particular precedents is par for the course, end quote. It is par for the course because Americans want to know your legal positions on these issues, and they have a right to know. They deserve and need to know. And I am... surprise and I think a lot of Americans will be scared by the idea that people who want to simply marry or have a relationship with the person they love could find it criminalized, could find marriage equality cut back. I think it would be an America where I wouldn't want to live. Well, Senator, to suggest that that's the kind of America I want to create isn't based on any facts in my record. And that quote that you read to me from the article talked about it being par for the course for those questions to be asked, but didn't say anything about whether it was appropriate for nominees to answer them. Others have answered that same question, and I'm disappointed that you won't. Let me move on to another area. Uh, last month, the New York Times published a series of bombshell reports dealing with the current state of the president's finances. There were a lot of revelations in that report, including that the president himself is responsible for loans totaling $421 million, 
most of which is coming due within four years. That amount of personal debt makes the president vulnerable to leverage, to manipulation, to coercion. His vulnerability makes him a threat to our national security. I'm not going to ask you about that aspect of his finances or that he paid only $750 in income taxes in 2016 and 2017. I want to ask you about a fact that is critical constitutionally. During his first two years in office, the president received $73 million from foreign sources. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I just want to say I led a lawsuit involving 200 of my colleagues challenging the president's receipt of those foreign benefits and foreign payments as a violation of the Emoluments Clause. And we cited as well other payments and benefits that he received from India, Afghanistan, Kuwait, Qatar, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, Slovakia, and Thailand, and more in violation of the Emoluments Clause. And we've been talking a lot about originalism. The Emoluments Clause was the premier anti-corruption clause in the United States Constitution. As Edmund Randolph of Virginia said, specifically, the clause was intended to, quote, prevent corruption, end quote, by, quote, prohibiting anyone in office from receiving or holding any emoluments from foreign states, end quote. The lawsuit that I led was denied certiorari yesterday by the United States Supreme Court. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against us on the limited technical issue of standing. It didn't deal with the merits. I hope that you will keep in mind the danger of corruption and the need to give citizens standing to enforce laws that prohibit corruption. Nobody is above the law. You've stated that position very well. And enforcement of laws that prevent corruption is vital. And my view is that the president, any president, must be held accountable. Do you agree? No man is above the law. I agree with that, as I've stated very clearly before. And I also want to assure you, Senator Blumenthal, that I will apply all laws and come to an open mind with all laws, including laws dealing with anti-corruption. Let me ask you about a topic that really hasn't arisen much here, okay. climate change. One of my colleagues, Senator Kennedy, asked you about it late in the hearing yesterday. Uh, and your answer was, quote, you know, I'm not a scientist. I have read things about climate change. I would not say I have firm views on it. Do you believe that human beings cause global warming? Well, Senator Blumenthal, I don't think I am competent to opine on what causes global warming or not. So I Well, we all have really views offer, on it. I'm yeah, asking for your opinion. I don't think that my views on global warming or climate change are relevant to the job I would do as a judge 
nor do I feel like I have views that are informed enough and I haven't studied scientific data. I'm not um, really in a position to offer any kind of informed uh, opinion on what I think causes I, I understand. And, and again, I apologize for interrupting. Do you agree with the president on his views of climate change? Um, I don't know that I have seen the president's expression of his views on climate change. Okay. Let me ask you on another area. Uh, are you aware of the uh, Supreme Court, as it's called, shadow docket? I am. Essentially, this docket consists of cases that are decided, often stays or extension of orders, without an opinion, correct? Correct. And as a matter of fact, uh, in the denial of certiorari in Blumenthal versus Trump yesterday, there was no opinion providing the reasons why they did so. We don't even know how many justices supported the decision, except that there must have been at least five. And despite detailed reasoning from lower courts, which we challenge, about uh, the issues, there was no opinion. And the same was true of the census decision, as you know. So don't you think there should be transparency on the part of the Supreme Court? I think that the court, um, in the practice of denying cert petitions, routinely, and, and you know, the shadow docket has become a, a hot topic in the last couple of years. But you know, even when I was cooking on the court in 1998, it was not typical. It's for the getting court interesting. I don't think that we can slow down this train wreck, but it's getting interesting. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, check your voter registration. Go to IWillVote.com and tell all your friends to go to IWillVote.com. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.